Welcome to The Rock's podcast. We are currently going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. We pray that these sermons encourage your faith. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we continue studying the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we, we just sit before you in your awesome presence. We acknowledge that you're here. We thank you for the God-breathed word that... No man wrote these words, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and and wrote as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we're so thankful, Lord. We want to be changed. We want your word to do its work in our hearts. And toward that purpose, we yield. In Christ's name, amen, amen. Well, when the king of Jordan, King Hussein, died in 1999... His son, Prince Abdullah, succeeded him, and he's been king ever since. Back in the early days of the new king's administration, uh, he, he acquired an unusual nickname for a most unusual practice. They called him the Stealth King. The reason that they called him the Stealth King was because he had this habit of slipping out of the royal palace. So instead of meeting with regular appointments with dignitaries and courtiers and all of that, uh, he disguised himself and posed as a commoner. And the reason he did this, he'd go out and mingle with the subjects there on the streets. And they hadn't a clue who he was. And the purpose was because he wanted, first of all, to get some real opinions. He wanted some ideas that weren't um, intimidated responses, you know. Sometimes you tell a king exactly what a king wants to hear kind of thing. And so it's kind of genius to go out looking for people and and kind of sympathizing with real problems and he really wanted to have a clearer understanding about the issues that faced everyday Jordanians, his subjects. And every so often, in one of those encounters, something amazing would happen. He'd suddenly remove his disguise uh, to the astonishment and delight of everybody. They hadn't a clue they were dealing with the king of Jordan. Very powerful, very rich very influential man, but they hadn't a clue because he had a disguise. Well, some of you know where I'm leading with this. The king of Jordan wasn't the only king to go about among us incognito, undercover, as it were. So the gist of the gospel tells us this, that the king of kings, the Lord of glory, went about... His time with us, he dwelled among us. The word became flesh. The word was God and dwelt among us with perhaps kind of a disguise, if you want to call it that, or a a veil that kind of hid 
his true royal identity uh, from us. And so after all, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says he's the fullness of God poured into a human form, the incarnation of the Son of God. And so he came uh, out of, slipped out of his royal palace, you know, to mix with his subjects, right, to mingle down here with us to solve our greatest problem, not only to sympathize with us as our mediator between God the Father and a broken world, uh, but to lay down his life to be uh, a sin offering. And so, uh, you know, once in a while, being God in the flesh, you know, his glory just sort of slipped out and you kind of got a glimpse, whoa, who is this man? who can talk to a hurricane and make it obey. Who is this man? Remember in John 7 where the Pharisees say, go get that guy, arrest him, and bring him in. And the guards go out to arrest Jesus. They're stunned by Jesus' teaching. And they come back to the Pharisees empty-handed. And the Pharisees said, where is he? We told you, go arrest him and bring him back in. And the guards, the Roman centurions, these big, powerful men said, have you ever heard him? (laughs) (laughs) No one has ever spoken like that. You see, so some of that majesty, the glory, the essence of his divine nature, he is fully God behind those big brown eyes is the Lord of the universe. And once in a while, it kind of slipped out, like when he would tell a dead person to sit up. I mean, that kind of gave him away, right? But on this occasion, Mark chapter 9, probably the best ultimate example of really kind of lifting the veil of Jesus' humanity for all the world to see really who he truly is and uh, let his true colors come shining through, well, quite literally. Here's what I'm talking about. Now, uh, I compiled Matthew, Luke, and Mark, and uh, Luke is green, Matthew's blue. It comes after this slide here. So, And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So heads up, it's going to be a fantastic spectacle to see. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured, transformed, changed from within, Before them, the appearance of his face changed. It became bright as a flash of lightning and shone like the sun. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could ever bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses in glorious splendor who were talking with Jesus about his departure, which was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. 
Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud interrupting Peter. <laughs> this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. Suddenly, when they looked around, uh, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And so there, my friends, just a wonderful passage, a favorite for many believers. We're going to take a look at the spectacular display of Jesus' glory and power. This sermon is brought to you by the letter C because the, <laughs> the main points begin with a C for your easy recall. All right, so we're going to talk about what's up with this. Why did Jesus do this? You know, everything Jesus does has intentionality about it and purpose. So if you were to kind of ask, well, why, why do you think he did this? I, I've got three purposes for us to think about. One, he, he let this divine uh, illustration happen uh, because he wanted to cheer up his disciples, to cheer his disciples. They had just heard some pretty distressing news, and we'll talk about that. Secondly, he allowed them to see his glory to confirm his true identity. They had just been talking. Who do people say I am? Who do you say that I am? And there was a claim that Jesus accepted to be equal to God in every way. So he needs to confirm that, not just talk about it, but let me show you. And then thirdly, he needed to clarify his mission because, wow, they really got mixed up with the, death, the talk about dying and the cross and the rising. Uh, he has to bring some clarity to what it means to save the world. And so the three C's to cheer his disciples, to confirm his identity, and to clarify his mission. All right, we set. And by the way, the purposes are the same for you and for me. The purposes remain <laughs> to encourage our faith by the gaze of understanding who, who, who's on the other end of our prayers, uh, who lives within us. And so when you're looking at those scriptures, just know that Jesus has taken residence by his spirit in our very hearts and be encouraged uh, by that, by knowing who Christ is and what he came to do. We just can't go wrong. And so let's open up with the first verse, because it ties you back and will answer the question why he's going to take them up the mountain to encourage them. They need encouragement because the, Jesus just told them some shocking news, as I've been saying. Really shocking news, breathtaking, powerful things. And so he wants to encourage them. And you'll see, notice in your verse, that this is tied to the last conversation that they all had, which was last week's sermon in Mark chapter 8. Do you see the and? And he said to them, so really, even your Bible separates them out so that chapter 9 doesn't start with chapter 9. Chapter 9, 1 starts in your Bible, some of them, with the last verse of chapter 8, even though it says 9, 1, because this is the last sentence of the dialogue that they just had that was pretty hard that kind of sends them up the mountain for the display so they can be encouraged based on what they had just heard. Let me remind you 
about that conversation. He says to them, next verse, the cross-reference, please. Yeah. He then began to teach them that the Son of God, Son of Man, same thing, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the leaders, and that he must, must be killed. And then after three days rise again, they never got that up until the resurrection. After the three days, they're still walking down the road going, where is he? You know, they, they didn't get it. All they could see was the things in gaps. Suffering, rejection, killed the Messiah. And then he called the crowd and he said, if you think that's bad, if anyone would come after me, must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. For if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your, your life for me, you're going to find it. For the gospel, you'll save it. And so these are the, some of the things. And then our next, our verse one, at the end of that, and he said to them, Oh, by the way, down and out, feeling a little uh, freaked out by what I just said? Don't worry. Some of you standing right here, you're about to see some amazing things. You're not going to die before you see the power and the presence of God. And so for six days, they're walking and they're going up the hill. They have a lot to think about. And it's because they've just sort of had their, their wind knocked out of them. How many of you have had the wind knocked out of you, especially as a kid? You remember falling on your back, off your bike, bump, or off the horse, or wherever, right? And you go to take a breath, but what happened? Your diaphragm is in a spasm because of the thud, right? And it's not working properly. You breathe in for the air, and the diaphragm goes stuck. Sorry. <laughs> and you're like, where did the oxygen go, right? Well, this is like hearing... The business is bankrupt, the marriage is over, the cancer is incurable, and you've got six months to live. But only worse. It's worse because it's eternal and spiritual and their hopes of eternal life and heaven. It's not like hearing there's no Santa Claus. There's no heaven in their minds. This is a Messiah. They've got the scriptures. They skipped over the, 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 the suffering servant messianic, crucified for the sins of the world scriptures. And they said, you know what's waiting in Jerusalem? A throne. A throne for the Messiah to thy kingdom come is waiting. The lion laying down with the lamb, all the bad guys get justice. There are no more bad guys because it's a place where only righteousness and goodness dwells. It's this beautiful kingdom, renewed earth like the Garden of Eden, the Bible says of that day. Israel's oppressors dealt with and Israel and God's people honored. That's what this all meant. That's where it was leading to. We're on our way to Jerusalem, he said. And then he says, but instead of that, instead of all of that, the glory, the joy, the shining, the city of God, Jesus on a throne, on a renewed earth, he says, I'm going to be stripped, mocked, spit upon. My beard's going to be pulled out. They're going to flog my back and crucify me shamelessly. You knock the wind out of him. So now we need to take the spiritually speaking, the defibrillator, and, and bring a little spiritual life back. 
And there's nothing like waiting on the top of the hill, what's waiting for them to bring a little life back. Because after that scene, those men can say, okay, death, cross, grave, whatever's ahead, they can't kill that. Because whoever that is, and he's the Lord of glory, his plan cannot be thwarted. You cannot stop the Lord. And so that's what was happening here. The poor guys, they get, man, their whole life flashing before their eyes. And so Jesus is going to change all of that. As I said, you know, there were scriptures in the Old Testament that said the Messiah, who was called Mighty God, they knew the Messiah was divine and had to die, clearly, if they were paying attention. But the boys, they're fishermen, they might have gone out fishing instead on that Sunday, as it were, and they missed Isaiah, if you're taking notes, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52, and Isaiah 53. Clearly, a divine Savior, born of a virgin, Old Testament, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and dying as a sin offering, as an exchange, so that we could be saved. It was right there. But they couldn't see that. All they could see was um, now Jesus saying uh, that they couldn't see. All they could see was the glory of the other scriptures. And there are a lot of scriptures about glory. So instead, he says, hey, they're going to kill me. They're going to reject me. And you who follow me aren't going to fare much better. (laughs) Wow. And so that's the reason why they need a little uh, cheer. And so he says, truly, truly, he says, I tell you the truth, NIV version, King James, truly, truly. The word in the Greek there is amen, amen. And that was Jesus' way of saying, what I'm about to say, you can take that to the bank because that's underlined, emboldened, and uh, italicized. So he says, listen up, amen, amen. Some of you here, You think the world has just come to an end. You're about to see something amazing. You're going to see the kingdom in the presence of God coming in great power. So hang on, hang on, he's saying, hang on. And so, uh, oh, by the way, atheists have a field day with this verse. They say that Jesus was mistaken. He's, He's alluding to the second coming which he is not, obviously. But they say, well, it sounds like the second coming to us. So since the disciples died and he hasn't come in the second time, well, then we know that Jesus is in error. Lots of things are possible in this life, but Jesus being mistaken or the scripture being in error is not one of them. Amen? The answer to this, Jesus always ties his appearing to future signs. He says, this has to happen, this has to happen. Matthew 24, this has to happen, this has to happen. When you see this happen, then this has to happen. He, oh, he never taught his disciples, oh, I'm coming back in your lifetime. He never said those words. So why would there be a mix-up here when he says my coming is a future event at the end of the age, he said, Right? 
And so there's no confusion for us. What he's going to do is encourage them who need encouragement to say, here's a temporary <laughs> lifting of the veil for you to see what it's going to be like. And so it's an assurance and a guarantee of the fullness, fulfillment of the second coming, but just right there to encourage his disciples. That's all it means there. And by the way, the only contradiction in the Bible, let me read this quote. The guy's name is Pastor Ross. I don't know if you know him. I've been doing this lately, all right? I just write it down like I'm writing a book or something, and this is the quote. The only contradiction in the Bible is this, that in spite of ample evidence in creation, prophecies in the Bible, a God-given conscience, the love of God demonstrated on those pages through Jesus' agonizing death on the behalf of sinners, the only contradiction is why any man or any woman would willingly resist and forfeit so great a salvation. That, my friend, is the only contradiction I know of in the Bible. Amen? Amen. All right. I need a little happier amen. Just like, <laughs> let, let me try it again. Uh, you, you know what? The only contradiction in the Bible is this. No, go ahead. <laughs> you were all ready and you kind of threw me there for a little They would get a foretaste, a glimpse, okay? And that's really anticipating and guaranteeing the fullness of what was to come, right? So to this beautiful um, passage, we now look, um, you know, let's go on to verses two and three and look at that powerful display. So after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him, led them up a high mountain. Mount Hermon's the only one that qualifies, really. And it's right where they were standing when they had the previous conversation. Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon. Makes sense. Six days up the hill. And they were all alone. And there he was transfigured from within, a change from within to another thing before them. The appearance of his face changes, becomes bright as a flash of lightning, oh, typo, and shone uh, like the sun. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I, I really like that line a lot. Okay, let's talk about this. Time to confirm his identity. And first of all, doesn't he always do this? I've, I've spoken a lot about this. Any megalomaniac, any crazy man, any lunatic, we have them today that go around and say, you know, I'm the light of the world. Anybody who believes in me, follows me, you'll never walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. And then nothing. Jesus makes a statement like that in John chapter 8 and verse 12. And then in chapter 9, he says, let me show you. And he takes somebody in darkness, a blind man with no eyeballs, he lays hands on a man that doesn't have eyes, and then suddenly he has eyes and can see. He says, see, I take somebody out of the dark and then let them see the light and walk into the light. You see, so you can trust me when I say, 
if anybody believes in me, I'm the light of the world because I just proved it. And then in John chapter 10, he says, don't believe me if I can't do what only God can do. He says, don't just take me at my word, but see my deeds and the deeds speak for me, he says. So when he says, hey, I'm the bread that you're longing for. I'm the God who made you. You've got a God-shaped hole in your heart, man. If you eat this bread, I'm like bread that came down from heaven. You'll never be hungry. You'll never be thirsty. I'm what you need. He could have stopped there. But then he takes a piece of bread and he feeds 5,000 people with one piece of bread. And he says, see, talking about the bread thing, that's what he does. He doesn't just leave you hanging with the claim. When he says, you believe in me, you'll never die. Anybody can say that. But then he says, he says, show me where you laid Lazarus. Every single claim he does this, I don't know if you've noticed this. He says, okay, I can keep you from dying. Let me prove it to you. You got a guy who's been dead four days? Yes, we do. But we wouldn't suggest you open the tomb up because he'd been dead. And it's going to smell a little bit. The King James says, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> and Jesus has to say, didn't I tell you that whoever believed in me, I can keep from dying. They'll live forever, even if they die. Didn't I just say that? That's what he says. John 11. And to prove that those aren't just big, grandiose words, Lazarus, who's been dead and wrapped up, for four days come forth and the power of God grabs a hold of his soul and puts it back in his body and out he comes and he says I can fulfill I can keep every single claim I make and here's the claim who am I Peter and Peter says uh, you're God in a body you're the son the incarnation you're the radiance of God's glory. You're the exact representation of his being. You're the fullness of God in bodily form. You're the word who was with God and was God and then became flesh. You're almighty God. That's what he's saying. Anybody can say they're God. A lot of people do. But then he says, let me give you a peek. Look. Look, does that look like some rabbi who makes wooden tables? No, it doesn't. It looks a lot like Psalm 104 where it says, the Lord is great and magnificent and majestic and robes himself in light. The description of God throughout the Old Testament is light, light, light. And then in the New Testament, God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. So he says, since I'm claiming to be one with the Father, and if you've seen the Father, you have seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, John chapter 14, verse 9. Then let me just show you that they're not just empty words. I and the Father are one. Whoop. There you go. Of course he has to look like this because he is the Lord. And of course he kept that truth from them because it would blow their minds. He had to. It often said they were kept from a full understanding of this. Because Could you walk around knowing this human being was God? 
Colossians 1.15 says, by Jesus, with the brown eyes and the hands, with the calluses, the normal guy who's rolling up his bedroll over there, by him, all things that exist, he created all things, and by him, all things hold together. That's too much for a human brain at the moment. It's even hard for us to grapple with. And so what you see there is just the truth of who he's been claiming from the beginning, to be equal to God in every way. And so he says, that's right. Let's take a look at that proof right now. So, you know, Peter, James, and John are treated to see this. Why Peter, James, and John? Well, they turn out, my theory is, why are they the leaders? Well, you look at their, their personalities, the three of them. Peter, oh, let's do this. Let's walk on the water. Let's get it done. <laughs> you know, he's just, he's not always right. But, and, and he's not always sensitive, but he wants to go out, let's do this. Now, let, let, let's not play around here, people, right? And, who, and what's the other two like? James and John. Jesus had a nickname for them. He called them Thunderbolts, son of Thunderbolts, right? Because why? At times they're like, okay, let's do this. Okay, they're in our way. Lord, should we call down fire from heaven? Now, Jesus said... Ugh. No. <laughs> In fact, do we know each other? <laughs> because this isn't working out quite right. But the personality of thunder, let's do this. Come on, let's take this serious. Let's show something for our faith. Those three have that personality, and God liked it. And he said, I'm going to use you three. Now, there's another uh, Possibility, David Guzik brings out. He says, yes, of course, these three guys are the inner circle. They're the leaders. They had gifts and callings to be that. But as anyone else thought, it might also be that they were the three most likely to get in trouble. So he had to, <laughs> so he had to keep a closer eye on them. <laughs> that could be true. So Luke says, tells us that it was while Jesus was praying that his face changed. So they're watching him. And he's in prayer. He probably has his hands up and, you know, you're praying. So he's praying. My question is, they don't tell us, what was he praying? You know what he was praying. He was praying, Father, these guys' world just came crashing down. They're fearful. They're afraid. Their hope is gone. They need something. They need a fresh vision. They need some help. And while he's praying, boom. There it goes. On behalf of those men, they're going to get what they needed. <laughs> now, his face was transfigured. I've already told you that word. It's only used three times. I'll tell you where the other two are later. But it, it really means to be changed from the inside out. Warren Wiersbe said, if we're not careful, we think of the transfiguration as just a bright spotlight shining on Jesus. But this wasn't a light coming on Jesus from outward. The word transfigured means a change on the inside that affects the outside. It's the opposite of masquerade, which is an outward change that does not come from within. And so this 
transcendence of light and his face changing. It kind of reminds me of Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 19 of this glorious image of eyes of fire and all of this. It's just beautiful. The remark about the clothes being white, here's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, you've seen white, and you know they had launderers who made clothes as white as they could, right? He says, oh, no, 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 it's way beyond what could be produced on earth as a whiteness. You can think of white, but then a thousand times on steroids white. It's a white that's never entered your mind kind of white. That's what he's trying to say. It didn't come from earth, right? And so you've got this face shining like the sun. You've got his clothes dazzling. You've got the appearance of lightning. That's an amazing thing. And interesting, Isaiah 53 says he's an ordinary man in his flesh. There was nothing handsome or attractive to make us desire him, Isaiah 53. But you see, when we're transfigured, that word means to be changed. When we're glorified, oh, he's something to behold, and so will you. You are in the process of being transfigured. And when you awake, when you see him, you shall be like him. So take a good look at that, because the scriptures say in Luke chapter 23, the righteous enter into eternal life shining like the sun in all its brilliance. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's what they look like. That's what Christ looks like. We are the children of God. And he says, when you are finished being transfigured completely and fully, you shall bear the same kind of glorious body as Christ, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19. That our body looks like him, we look like him, we shine like him. That should have an amazing impact on how we behave today. You know? You just picture yourself waddling around heaven in your old body. <laughs> you know? You're walker and you go, I'm so glad to be in heaven. <laughs> oh, 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 no, 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 no. Like father, like son, like father, like daughter. And it's scriptural. He says that when you see him, you will be like him. That's amazing to me. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, you know what's amazing to me? He said, it's not, the, the, it's not a new miracle, but a temporary pause on an ongoing miracle. The real miracle, perhaps greater miracle, was that Jesus most of the time could keep from displaying his glory. After all, that was God in human form. And so, okay, so this, all this light is just amazing, just telling us, pointing. No wonder he can walk on water and silence hurricanes and do what he does because he is God in a human uh, body. So, as such, let me just tell you, let me remind you, this is who, who lives with you, not just him. He said, if anybody believes me and puts my word into practice, my father and I will come make our home in them. And then he goes on to say, and the Holy Spirit will be in you. So you've got this being 
unbeknownst to you, pulsating in your veins. Just remember that. Just remember that. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. This is what he's worthy of our submission, our obedience, our sacrifice, because it's him. That's amazing. Okay, let's finish up with his clarity of his mission. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, glorious splendor as well. They're talking about his departure. And just kind of let you know that word is the same word that means exodus, the exodus, the genesis, the the, um, exodus of exodus, really, what happened after Genesis. So we'll talk about that which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter gets going, right? Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, all of this. I'm going to build a bunch of tents. He didn't know what he was saying. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and God the Father has to get a hold of Peter to get him to stop talking, and then gives them some instruction. And then when they hear the voice of God the Father, that's tilt time for them, and they fall face down to the ground. They're terrified, and Jesus comforts them and touches them. He says, no need to be afraid. You would think there would be in the awesome presence of God, and he says, no need for you guys to be afraid. Stand up. It's okay. And So let's finish up with the clarity of the mission to save mankind. The departure, the exodus, is a shout-out to the first exodus, and we'll talk about that. So two guests in attendance here, very interesting, Elijah and Moses. Why them? Why those two? Well, I'm glad you just asked me that, because I've I've spent some time going to tell you now. Glad you asked. Um, Elijah represents the prophets. He was one of the first, and greatest of the prophets, and so Elijah represents standing there, the prophets. Moses is called the lawgiver. He, of course, wrote the first five books in um, the Old Testament, and so uh, the law through Moses, and so that's pretty clear. So we have the prophets, the law and the prophets standing next to the culmination of everything the law and the prophets stood for, prophesied and said was coming about Christ. So what you have there with the law and the prophets is really um, the Old Testament. Jesus often used the law and the prophets as kind of a nickname for the whole Old Testament scriptures. When that man said, Rabbi, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others with the same kind of love and interest you have for yourself. He says, then this, upon this, hang all the law and the prophets, meaning the whole Old Testament. So what they're doing there is saying the whole Judaism as a whole has worked and finished. The whole Old Testament is complete and has brought forth the God-man, the savior of the world. And the Old Testament said, born of a virgin, Old Testament, Isaiah 7, 14. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, mighty God, everlasting Father, all of these things to lay down his life as a sin offering, 
to be crucified, dead, and buried, and raised so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this is the understanding, (laughs) the culmination, the consummation of the law and the prophets standing right there as Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you're asking, Jamie, I don't know, if why did Elijah have to be the one? How about Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah? That's a good question. (laughs) So the answer to that is a, a shout back to the first exodus. Now, Moses was there, right? The first exodus... And Jesus about to make them the exodus possible. The exodus was about God's people being enslaved and oppressed, helpless in the slave pits of Egypt, needing a deliverer, right? And so God intervenes, busts them out. But the, the final death blow to the oppressor was death. And so he said, take the blood of a lamb, put it on the doorpost, go in. And when death comes calling, it'll pass over And because of that, there was a mass exodus. The departure of the people of God ended up out of the slave pits and in the promised land. Now, when Christ fulfills the death and resurrection part and the cross, there's truly a mass exodus. And the way that you see him in glory in this passage is when he comes, there'll be another mass exodus because he calls his people out of an oppressive world and into the freedom and the promised land to be with him. Now, why Elijah and why Moses? Oh, this is good. Moses is what died and was buried. So at the coming of the Lord, the dead in Christ receive their bodies back and they are, those bodies are united to their spiritual bodies the second before those of us who are alive at his appearing, the splendor here that we've seen, right, will be caught up. Elijah was caught up. He was not dead and buried. So what you, what you have here is a representation of the state of the world before the coming of the Lord after he's been crucified that The dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up like Moses, if you're dead in Christ, like Elijah, if you're alive and remain, you will be caught up. Amen. Isn't that beautiful right there? I mean, you didn't see that coming. You didn't, Jamie, you did not, did you? That is so good that you asked me that. All right, back to Peter, all right? So we first find him interrupting Elijah Moses talking to the Son of God. And here's his first problem. He starts out in shock, and he says, Rabbi. Sean, Rabbi, really? Didn't we just say last sermon? Who do you say I am, Peter? And he didn't say, Rabbi. What did he say? You're God in a human form. You're Jesus Christ. You're the the anointed one to save the world. You're the son of the living God. So he starts out because he's in shock, you know, because he's a little scared, a little anxious. And everything God teaches you, when you face a little bit of fear, goes out the window. So he starts off calling him what the Pharisees call him. Rabbi, (laughs) 
Oh, come on. So it gets worse. <laughs> so don't be like that. He could have said what Thomas called them, my Lord and my God. Wasn't that just what the whole point of this was? No, but he's like kind of got, you know, the adrenaline's going and the faith is diminishing. So he says, okay, it's really good to be here. He's in shock. I like what it says here. He, he didn't know what to say, so he started talking. <laughs> you know, so he was so frightened. He didn't know what to say, but when he doesn't know what to say, he just talks, right? But I like what Luke says. Luke says, he didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> See, so I can hear him telling Mark, Peter telling Mark, I was so afraid, you know, I didn't know what to say. And then Luke said, yeah, we know. You didn't know what you were saying. <laughs> you didn't know what you were saying. Just a slight little nuance there that I think is fun between friends. <laughs> so let's look at uh, Peter's monologue. Now, he's just not thinking. He wants to be helpful and hospitable, but... Uh, can you allow me to paraphrase it a little bit? Because he's babbling. I think they kind of cut out some parts. So I'm going to add a little bit of, along the lines. Okay, so he's just saying, oh, wow, wow, great to have you here all together today. Oh, nice weather, isn't it? But sometimes it gets cool, so maybe we should be thinking shelters. All right, and we wouldn't want you to run off right away. We want you to stay. So I'm going to build you guys a little lean-to. We'll start with Jesus first. Jesus, you know, I'm no carpenter, so don't compare me to your skills. Okay, but, you know, I'm going to build you something else out here. You know, sometimes we get some inclement weather up here in Mount Hermon, Elijah, you know, and just want you to know uh, I, I'm good at building stuff. I, I used to make forts when I was little. So he says, let's start with you first, Jesus. Okay, now we're going to make a place for Moses, and then we'll make a place for Elijah. And that's where God the Father says, I'm going to move in on this guy. <laughs> now, God the Father's invisible. You can't see God the Father. So he's going to use something. What is he going to use? He uses a cloud. He always does that. So when the cloud comes, you know, whoa, he's here, right? <laughs> And so the cloud sweeps in, and he's still talking. Nice weather we're having. Okay, can you hand me? What kind of wood would you prefer? And the voice says, Peter. Well, it says, this is my son, not a rabbi. He's answering Peter. This is my son. Did you just call him a rabbi after what we've just been through? This is my son whom I love, who I've chosen goes on, chosen, Luke adds chosen. Matthew says, in whom I am well pleased, whom I love is in your text. He's saying, you don't put Moses and Elijah on the same level with my son. This is my son. Listen to him. They exist. They're, they're there really to encourage Jesus. Did Jesus need encouragement to face the cross? Humanly speaking, he laid aside his deity. He did this as a man. And so they, they're encouraging him. And so the God, the Father, is encouraging Peter. This is Jesus. And when you look up, you're only going to see Jesus. Everything else in the word of God points to Jesus and is useful and beneficial as it fulfills itself in Jesus because Jesus is 
all that we need. Well, it was on an airplane sitting next to some poor woman <laughs> who started a conversation with me. You know, she saw me reading my Bible and she said, I'm a Christian too, but I kind of, and she, she, she told me she lived in Forestville, which was a coincidence. She said, I'm a Christian too, but I supplement my faith with Buddhism because I find it kind of fills in what I'm missing in Christ. And so I, turn, I have my Bible, my big fat Bible, <laughs> the big giant uh, blind people's version. <laughs> and I turned to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. And I said, hey, uh, can, can we read a scripture about Jesus not being all for you and all of that? And she said, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and read it. And so I pushed it in front of her. And I said, would you mind reading it? You know, my eyes. And uh, <laughs> it's so much better coming out of their mouths. And so she says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Christ who called us by his own glory and goodness. And she said, oh, I, I, I never seen that verse before. <laughs> she says, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. I said, that's right. When you have Jesus, you have everything you need because Jesus is God. And this kind of passage just shows you there's no mistake in who God is. And so Matthew lets us know on their, on their, you know, they're on their faces, they're terrified, the radiant splendor, first from God the Son, and then the majestic voice from God the Father. Can you imagine? And and like I said before, tilt and they go down. And 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 here's the part I really like. The splendor of God is not to make his people fall over with fear. That's why the hand, the nail scarred hand of Jesus will reach down and say, hey, get up. Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. And in the scriptures, when you see his coming, the people of God are, have joy and they marvel. Now the presence of God at the second coming, when he appears in the glory that you just read, they cry out, may the mountains fall upon us to hide us from him who sits on the throne. It would have been much better for them to cry out, we repent of our murders and our sorceries and our sexual immoralities, but they don't. Instead, they lift their fists and continue in their wicked ways and just say, hide us, let us try to hide. But there's no hiding. There's no hiding from that. You see, perfect love casts out our fear he who fears is not perfected in love because fear involves punishment. And punishment all went on the Lord. So when you see him, yeah, we're going to be in awe, but we're not going to be trembling as dead men. That won't work because he stands us up and he put his gracious hand upon us and he's raised us to new life. And by the way, once I've already said this, when you see him, you're going to be like him. So there'll be no, none of that fear. Yes, we will fall on our faces and worship out of respect and awe and throw our crowns at his feet. 
But Jesus says, get up, don't be afraid. Let me close with two applications because Jesus is the only, not the only one who gets transfigured. It's used two other times in the Bible, and here they are. Therefore, I urge you, Romans chapter 12, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transfigured. It's the same word. Be transfigured by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve, and you'll just know what God's will is, and you'll be blessed with his good and perfect will. God is at work transfiguring us because when you get there, you're going to look like him. He's already started the process and he wants that process to be happening now that you should no longer be the old you. You should be one day closer and to his image and one day further out from the person you used to be when he found you. That is one of the evidences that, that you're saved. Is, is that he's transforming, same word, transfiguring you, not conforming is from the outside. Transforming is from within the change. If that's not happening to you, something's wrong. Yeah, it's two steps forward, three steps back sometimes. That's okay. But at least you're limping, and you're limping in the right direction, praise God. All right? So how do you do this? First of all, how do you get transfigured? He says... Number one, be inspired by his love. In view of his mercy, look what he did for you. That makes you want to yield the reins of your lives. Secondly, he says, cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And here's one version of the Bible. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Those are not my words. That's a Bible translation of verse 2. Don't be conformed by this world. Don't let them squeeze you into the way they think. A lot of Christians have already gone that way. I don't even recognize them as Christians anymore because they let the world squeeze them and conform them into the world's thinking of how the gospel should be. Number three, get transfigured from the inside out. And how do you do that? It was in the text. Listen to God's word. Listen to him. Listen to the word. Meditate on the word. Study the word because that will renew your mind. You will wake up a different person, commensurate to your Bible reading and Bible understanding. Oh, holes in your Bible knowledge means a hole in your heart. There's so many different people I'll run into. They don't know. James 1 says, hey, count it all joy. You're supposed to have troubles. God is making you the person you're supposed to be through the trouble. So he says, oh, happy day when you fall into trouble. But if you don't know James 1, and you don't know, uh, Romans 8, 28, that God's working it out for your good. Or Romans chapter 5, where it says, hey, when we have trouble, we're not just joying. We don't just rejoice in the Lord during good times. We rejoice in God when the bad stuff happens, too, because we know he's working. But if you don't know Romans 5, you, you can't rest in that. So this is, what, this is how you're transformed, by listening to my son, which is the word of God. The last verse here, it's a beauty. 
So all of us who have had that veil of our unbelief, that was the context of the passage, removed, can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are transfigured into his glorious image. Charles Spurgeon says, what if you were to get a glimpse of the finished product of who you are? It would blow your mind because the angels, when we see angels manifest in the Bible, they fall over and quake with fear as dead men, right? And we, glorified, are greater than they. We're the bride of Christ, the children of God. We share his likeness. So if he were to give you a glimpse of this is you there, seated on a throne, my friend, he he shares a throne with you, he gives you a royal crown, and you reign and rule in the new kingdom. Paul says, could you please let that affect the way you live your life? First Corinthians chapter 6, he says, don't you realize we judge the world? Then, then can't you guys settle in your little bickering? Can I give you a glimpse of who you're going to be? You're going to sit on a throne and, and a portion of the world that needs to be judged is going to pass by your throne and you're going to give out some sentences. That's First Corinthians. So he says, what kind of people are you be? What kind of people should you be based on who he's making you? So he finishes up by saying, makes us more and more like him as we're changed into his glory. And how did that happen? You keep your focus on him. He says, look, you see and reflect the glory of God. No veil. So listen, how do you do that? Open up the book. See him on the cross the next time you want to do your own thing or be nasty or submit to your favorite sin. See him On the cross, behold the glory of God in a body, gasping for air, and thinking about you. You see, you fix your, that's how you'll be transfigured, by gazing upon Jesus' compassion. When when that woman's caught in adultery, she's pulling half of her clothes, she gets ripped out of the the, uh, scene of the crime. And they're about to kill her. And Jesus gets rid of them all and and looks down and says, woman, where are all your accusers? And she looks up and she's shaking. She thought she was dead. And she goes, they're they're not around. They're they're gone. And Jesus says, and I'm left and I'm not going to condemn you. Now get up, go home and leave your life of sin. (laughs) Compassionate because you're gazing upon him. The leper comes up. Everybody's avoiding. He's got sores. He's ugly. He's unlovely. He's contagious. And Jesus, in compassion, says his heart tore, and he takes his hand and touches him. You see, fix your gaze on Jesus, and that will affect and transform what's coming out of your mouth, your attitude, and your behavior. Then we're changed. And that's the way you wake up and look like him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that apart from your finishing work, your perfection, you're perfecting us. Oh, 
we'll never make it. But you promise, just cooperate, and that you will fill in the gaps. You will finish the process that you started, Lord. And we yield our lives to that. And we're looking forward to what you have in store. It just feels like it could be right around the corner, Lord. Help us to be found at peace with you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.